Hello and welcome to the one really long year episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of not so much the week this week, but the longest year we have ever experienced in any of our lifetimes. I'm talking about the year that began. Well, we're going to talk about when it began, but somewhere around April 2020 and is still going on. We're going to talk about it with me, Felix Salmon of Axios. We're also going to talk about it with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hello. We're going to talk about it with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello, hello. But really, the whole reason why we are doing this show and how the reason why we can talk about this whole year is we are going to talk about it with Joe Weisenthal, who's also of Bloomberg. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Thrilled to be here again. You have been covering markets on your amazing podcast, Odd Lots, for the entirety of this very long year. What I was hoping to do is just talk to you about markets because we don't talk to, about markets nearly enough. We're going to talk about. I thought this was a money podcast. What else do you. Is there something exactly, else? Exactly. What about? else is there? To, we somehow find other things to talk about. It. But, so we are going to talk about stonks, of course. We have to. But we're going to talk about labor markets. We're going to talk about lumber markets. We're going to talk about. Um, a little bit about crypto markets. We we have a bunch of that going on. Um, and we also have a Slate Plus where we where Joe will actually explain what was going on in the in the at the height of the lumber market craziness and how it actually had nothing to do with lumber. It's a great episode. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Joe, it is a media tradition to, um, one, get COVID at the end of the year, but two, to take advantage of the slow weeks between Christmas and New Year and around there to look back upon the year and do it. Oh, wow, what a year that's been. And I hate that media tradition more than words can say. But this has actually been a year for the ages, at least in the markets world. And weirdly on slate money we don't talk about markets that much but you are a markets person and so i want to ask you about the markets and what the hell happened this year what's the uh what's the very very big picture i would say um two two really big things uh one is if you just look at like the stock market, which people, you know, the S&P 500, which is probably the most close proxy for the stock market, it's done phenomenally well. So we're up like 25%. Extraordinary gains, probably in part because, you know, the simplest explanation is the economy by sort of objective measures is booming. Corporate earnings are booming. Growth is booming. When there is a boom, stocks usually go up. The other thing that I think is really interesting is and this is, I do not think this has gotten really as much attention as people appreciate, but I think that's important. A lot of people will say like, oh, this was like the year of like meme stocks and all kinds of like craziness and crypto and all this stuff. The weird thing is most of that stuff peaked in February and has been going sideways to down, depending on what you're talking about since then. So it's like, 
GameStop, the quintessential uh, memes, the first one that people really talked about, peaked in February. AMC peaked a little bit later, has uh, been going down since then. Bitcoin is up about 8% since January 8th. Now, it had an insane first eight days of the year, so it's still up a lot, like 100% or something, for um, 2021. But it's basically flat since, like, the middle of January. Uh, other coins, other things like that. So there's been this stealth, like, in the stuff that I think captures people's attention about this year, it has not been as dominant for most of the year as many people might have assumed. So I had, if you'd asked me in, like, January, you know, what was going to happen to the meme stocks? I would, I would have said they're either going to go up or they're going to go down. And I would have been wrong. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, no, but this is weird because like, the whole point about meme stocks is they get to these like, nosebleed valuations and either you get these crazy price spirals upwards or else they collapse. I genuinely don't understand the mechanism by which they go sideways. No, I, can't, I, I think everyone else is confused. It's, like, it's very easy to see why things go up. Totally, because it's like, well, I want to buy th- something because it's going to be more a week later. And that draws people in. It's very easy to see why things go down. It's like, oh, I got to cash out. But I agree with you. Like, the weird thing is uh, exactly right. That, like, GameStop is not at 1,000 or zero. It's, like, at, you know, 200 or something. It's, like, people are treating it like a real company. So I think you're right. Like, the prediction all of us would have made is wrong. 33% chance of going up, 33% chance of, and then, or something like that, right? I recently visited a GameStop, in case anyone's interested in my story. Wait, how come? Yes. What's your story, Emily? Very unusual for you. I, I always forget that GameStop is an actual company and not just a meme stock. Yeah, we actually went into the store. There were maybe three to four other customers there. GameStop mostly sells tchotchkes and not games. There were very, if you're looking at floor space. Well, tchotchkes space, and secondhand games. Yeah, it was, it was, the floor space was 50% tchotchkes, like those things with the big heads, not bobbleheads, but like the next generation of bobblehead. Funko Pops. Thank you. Joe is so smart. And my kids wanted <laughs> to buy all the tchotchkes. They didn't care about the games at all. There's some club you can join a GameStop where if you pay $5 a month, you have a shot at getting a PlayStation 3, the one Stacy already has. So that's my report from GameStop in the suburbs. Please continue. Stacy's like, it's her PlayStation 5, correct. Emily. It's a PlayStation 5. <laughs> Whatever, PlayStation 5. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's why we had to have a whole video games episode. Um. <clears throat> I still haven't learned my lesson. But, but Hertz is also a real company. Well, yes. Hertz is a real company. Right, Hertz is a real company that the people who bought it out of bankruptcy paid real money for, and there was a bidding war. And you can see why Hertz is worth money now. Like you couldn't really see at the time, or it's very hard to see. Except they were totally right. Like that is the 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 crazy thing is that when the recovery actually happened, and they sold off the parts, and there was like this, like it ended up being. That those people, and that was like the first, first one, like, because that was April or May of 2020. That ended up being basically right. It turned out that the value of the fleet, because of the surge in the price of used cars, since then was so high that the liquidation value of Hertz kind of justified. It's very surprising, and I don't really get it. And yet somehow, like, the market was kind of right back then. The narrative of 2021 has been, or at least was in the first quarter, this narrative of you know, the Wall Street bets crowd versus the professionals. 
And the professionals were definitely saying, look, Hertz is going to file for bankruptcy when in, in bankruptcy, equity gets wiped out. Um, and there were a few people like on the sidelines saying, well, I remember general growth properties and one or two other things from back in the day where like you can file for bankruptcy, but there's actually enough value in there that the residual equity has value and that buying the shares can be this like way for super sophisticated people like Bill Ackman to make money. What I am confused about is the reason why people were buying Hertz shares pre-bankruptcy. Was it because they had a super sophisticated case that there was residual equity value post chapter 11? Or was it just because the stock was going to the moon and it was going up and they were, you know, jumping onto the, the, the rocket ship and it was a meme stock? I just want to make sure we get the timeline right. And I don't mean to correct the host, but most of that was actually spring uh, 2020. That was like, by 2021, the company had already declared bankruptcy. Okay, so this is so now we are doing a two-year look back rather than a one-year <laughs> yeah, look back, which is fine because twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one has all been one big year. Yeah, and this so is I think that's, yeah, I, and I really do think this is this is the longest year ever. It began yeah, yeah. in in like what like April twenty twenty when the stock market started going up, and it's just been one long up and to the right since then. And I think that's totally fine, but it makes the question no less valid. And I do think that like this is the end of a two-year period essentially, or this is the end of one really long year. But I don't know the answer to that question, and it's very confusing because, again, like, it seemed like it was just like a Wall Street bets internet thing, but they were right on some level. Like, I don't get it. I have tried to wonder about this, whether, like, maybe it wasn't as retail-heavy as I assumed, and maybe that was sort of like a story we told. That's a possibility to me that it's something like, oh, look at these idiots buying up Hertz. Because that's a much easier to story than to do the work that maybe like there were people smart. I don't know, but I haven't heard of the like I haven't heard of like some big hedge fund winner either, as far as I know, who like went long Hertz. The crazy the thing was that Hertz itself didn't believe in Hertz. Hertz itself, when it tried to when it tried to issue a billion dollars of equity, basically came out to the judge and said, Yeah, this is going to zero, but there are people willing to buy it, so we should probably take advantage of it. And the judge was like, That is just not fair to those people. You can't you can't rip people off like that. It turns out those people would have made lots of money if they'd been able to buy that billion dollars of equity. Yeah, it's really strange. I, yeah, I don't get it. It's very strange to me. Why did it turn out Hertz, Hertz did well in the end? Was it because used car prices got so high and they had a fleet of used cars, essentially? And the, the, um, the used car prices and there was like a huge car rental boom in general. So like the infrastructure to operate, I think, a used car company was just way more valuable in... Uh, 2021 than people expected in 2020. So, you know, it has the cars, it had the locations at the airports, the contracts and everything. And people were like, oh, the used car business is finished. And it turned out that because prices got so high and everything else turned out to be a business that a bunch of people wanted. I think like Avis, I haven't checked on this like lately, but I think it's done pretty well. And then there was a big travel boom, right? So, even if you're like being cautious in the age of COVID and staying in an Airbnb rather than an, in an hotel, everyone wants to get out of their house and they still need to rent a car. This is insane. Okay, March 18th, 2020. I'm looking at the chart on my terminal right now. March 18th, 2020, Avis bought, uh, hit a low of just under $8. And November 2nd, 2021, $357. So kind of like we talk about Hertz, the story of Avis is right. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, it's a 40 bagger 
from uh, in about 18 months there. It's that, that's better than Dogecoin. It's better than, it's, it's unbelievable. And that actually is one of the weird things about the market too, which is that you have all of these, so in the very beginning, you probably recall, like we were sort of divided the world into COVID winners, COVID losers, right? Amazon, Netflix, Zoom. Peloton, Zoom video, exactly, COVID winners, right? Then you're like, COVID losers, uh, Hertz, obviously, Avis, airlines, uh, cruise lines, um, Planet Fitness, physical gyms, etc. cinemas, Live Nation, the uh, concert company was another, you know, classic COVID loser who's going to go to concerts. Many of these stocks have just done insanely well, including like department store stocks. So these sort of, and I, I think it's confusing. It's not just that they're up. It's just that they're significantly more up than they were pre-COVID, which I don't think is like intuitive to anyone. Right, because the, the, that was the trade, right? The, the trade was like, there's been this big sell-off in March 2020. The COVID losers sold off more than anyone else. We're going to take the bounce-back trade. And then they did bounce back very aggressively. And people who bought them in you know, March 2020 had made a lot of money by like May 2020. But then, as you say, the continued rise of the COVID losers over the past 18 months or so from their pre-pandemic levels to crazy post-pandemic levels like why would the cinema be worth more now than it was pre-pandemic like even if you set aside amc which i think is like super weird like we all there's something you know it's weird but but your 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 texan alamo draft house is opening up declared bankruptcy and is now opening up new locations around the country yeah well look at so live nation i think is one of the best ones like that's just concerts right like it's a pretty straightforward business that stock so if you look i'm looking at a five-year chart that stock pre- and its pre-pandemic uh, peak was a $75 stock. It dropped like everything else. It hit $30. And then now it's at 104 So this is a company that is significantly worth more than it was pre-pandemic. It's never been a meme stock because I think it's kind of like too big and established to truly get the meme uh, treatment. But it's like the market is pricing this as a significantly more valuable enterprise than it was uh, pre-crisis. And what you were saying back at the beginning of the show about like the main reason for the S&P 500 going up is just because companies are making more money and there are more profits and the economy is booming. But presumably Live Nation isn't making nearly as, nearly as much money now as it was pre-pandemic. I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, I mean, I don't want to like, you know, uh, I have although, although of course, you know, everyone is everyone uh, like stocks trade on future earnings, not past earnings, but still. Is it just like there's so much money now? <laughs> the economy is so hot. There's so much money to go around. Everyone is doing well. Like it is raining and everyone's getting wet. And it, it's, and some of it just doesn't except even make sense. Wow. Well, yeah, except for BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, for the most part, like the Fed did its job. Everyone has tons of money, 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 money. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's like almost not even complicated in a way. It kind of does, but also it kind of doesn't. Like, if you look at the proportion of the gain in the S&P, that's basically just the five giant tech giants, like, everyone else is up, but they're not up nearly as much. And, you know, I wasn't entirely joking about BuzzFeed. There are a bunch of stocks that are down as well. It's not like it's not like correlations are super well, high right now. One of those stocks is Robinhood, 
right? Which was kind of one, the, supposedly the big winner of the meme stock friendly. I was just looking at, at a chart today because that's what we do when we work at the place that we work at. And they're down, <laughs> they're down like more than 40% as of, as of closing price yesterday from their IPO wow. price, right? Like that is, that is significant. And I don't think that, you know, if you, if you talk to somebody about like what has changed with Robinhood's fundamentals, they're going to say, well, it was, it was a 40% decline type change. Well, actually, I was looking at another chart, Stacey, talking about that. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my chart against your chart. <laughs> I'm not looking at the stock chart. I'm looking at the MAU chart of Robinhood Monthly versus Fidelity. Yes. And when, um, when Robinhood went public, it actually had more monthly active users than fidelity now i didn't have more customers but its customers were logging in every month and using the site in the way that fidelity is just like buy and hold people and they weren't um since the meme stock frenzy at the beginning of this year Robinhood's maus are down substantially while fidelities have been going up so that you know there is like fundamentals going on there and i would say like again it sort of defies what I think people remember 2021 by, which is that, you know, like, I don't know. I'm, my guess is that the law, it's the, the, the lifespan of an aggressive Robin Hood options trader is not very long. That is uh, my understanding <laughs> of, is that that is a very quick way to go broke. Whereas investing in fidelity, via fidelity in some sort of buy and hold boring thing, the lifespan tends to be very long and that has a very good track record of doing very well. So it's one of these things where it's like, you know, 2021, the year of the Robin Hood trader. But, you know, the, one of the one only one of those businesses has a sort of like customer that is going to like statistically tell you make a lot of money over the long term. I can't not to make it about me again, but I cannot quit Fidelity <laughs> for the life of me. Like I had a 401k with them six employers ago. And then for some reason, I always have a Fidelity account. Like it never ends. Every other employer uses them and they suck me in. <laughs> um, but I have no need for Robinhood. Congratulations on being sucked in by Fidelity. <laughs> Does Fidelity have crypto yet? I feel like Robinhood is basically, it has this lost leader that's like stock trading and then it makes all of its money on options and crypto. To Joe's point, the option stuff is this like crazy sugar high that, that kills people. Um, crypto, I'm not sure about. You know what's interesting, actually? Fidelity was early into crypto. They have Fidelity digital assets, but they never really got it from the retail side. It was very institutional focused. And so they actually have been, and they invested in a lot of crypto companies. Um, they've done VC investments in crypto, but never made it part of, uh, from my understanding, the uh, the retail offering, which is an interesting choice, maybe a smart choice. Yeah, and Joe's not kidding when he says they got in early. I think that I think Fidelity Digital Assets launched in like 2018, so they've been in the game for a while. At least compared to yeah, most legacy institutions. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. Two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but 
I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Joe, one of the things I want to get your perspective on, because I feel like you're one of the only people in the world who can answer this question, is like, there were many more interesting markets than equities this year. And, you know, you, you've talked about a lot of them on Odd Lots and I think written about several. And, you know, if I were to ask you to, like, choose your favorite child, <laughs> which one would it be? <laughs> Is it going to be shipping containers? <laughs> or pallets? That, that's a really, that's a really, uh, that's a really good question. I will say, you know, I'll say two things. One is, that's absolutely right. And I think 2020, look, I've been a sort of like markets journalist uh, for like over a decade. And people ask me like, well, what is markets? Like, what does that mean? And I always say like, it's a line going up and down on a chart. So anything that goes up and down on a chart, basically with the price is the Y axis, uh, I consider to be uh, Fair markets. Game. And so, <laughs> but you know, uh, this year was the first year of my career where I was like significantly more interested in like real things. I guess maybe commodities is part of it than I was in actually like the sort of like financial markets, which I kind of got bored by middle of the year because it just seemed like stocks were going up. And it's like, well, OK, that that story is not that interesting. Uh uh, but, you know, like the real stuff, whether it's like labor, the price of labor, the price of various commodities, lumber, etc., um, was fascinating this year. And one of them, probably I would say lumber is the sort of commodity that I didn't know anything about going into 2021. And now I know at least a little bit about it. But it was sort of it's fascinating because when you start diving into like these real world commodities, there are just so many moving parts in terms of the formation of the price itself and why prices move the way they do. And one of the things that early on and lumber prices went absolutely to the moon at the beginning of 2021, one of the reasons why is there was a de facto short squeeze in the lumber market because we had this boom in housing and the lumber yards, which get lumber from the lumber mills, had these forward contracts to deliver lumber to the home builders. And they were short. They were running out of lumber. They were running out of lumber that they could get due to transportation, due to labor, etc. So we had this de facto short squeeze in the lumber market. And so, you know, we think of short squeeze as like a bunch of people shorted GameStop or a bunch of people shorting AMC. And then what happens? The price goes up on them. These things replicate also in the real economy. We just don't use these terms typically. So if you owe someone something real, a physical delivery of lumber. We don't typically think, oh, you're, you're you put on a short, but you de facto have. And I think 2021 has been an education about how all of these things that we think of as like financialized terms actually have very sort of like real significant meanings when we think about like who owes what to deliver at what on X day. Right. If if you if you put together a Kickstarter to build a well, it's, it's always a cast iron pan. Don't ask me why it's always a cast iron pan. But it's always everyone has like a new sexy cast iron pan. So you put together this Kickstarter. I have I have developed a somehow superior cast iron pan, and then you get a hundred thousand people like paying you in advance for cast iron pan. You are now short a hundred thousand cast iron pans, and however much they paid you is like all well and good, but if supply chains and costs and stuff go up, then you can wind up getting super, super squeezed. Yeah, and you might have to pay $200,000 to buy cast iron pans to deliver $100,000 worth of cast iron pans. And that's a classic short squeeze. As somebody who backed a lot of Kickstarters this year, mostly for video games, <laughs> um, I can tell you that it, it was the first time that I... 
and probably a lot of customers like got sort of real time updates that weren't so much about the product as about like the shipping. You know, they were like, well, just got my latest invoice for the container. I'm trying to get these books on in China and my prices are going up 50 or 60 percent. You know, I feel like a lot of 2021 was just making things that were previously invisible or obscure to be much more visible and much more prominent than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, I feel on your show, Joe, you you had someone on one saying basically like, if we're talking about shipping, something is wrong. That you, we should never be talking about shipping. That's been like the theme of 2021. It's like the fact that we're talking about X is a problem. Is a this time. is a market failure. It's like all over the place. It's like we have to like talk about the process for getting containers off the yard <laughs> at the port of Los Angeles. Probably not a good sign that the containers are getting off the yard in a timely manner at the port of Los Angeles. Make, making the invisible visible, I, f- I do think has some benefit because there are kind of all different weird labor issues, especially in all these supply chains that no one ever talks about or thinks about or appreciates. Um, And then 2021 brought it all kind of out into the open. Like people are thinking about like the lives of truckers who aren't paid when they're sitting in line and stuff like that. And I feel that that's probably a good thing. I mean, and and I think on on some level, we, we wound up talking a lot this year about hourly wages and people, you know, earning $15 an hour instead of $10 an hour. And the more you realize that the the service you're receiving is built on $10 an hour labor or was built on $10 an hour labor, and now that person is making a slightly more living wage of $15 an hour, and that's why the price went up, that kind of knowledge and that kind of making the, the invisible visible is a good thing. And I do think that the, like, one of the weird things we've we've seen this year, um, we we just saw um, GoPuff raise a one point five billion dollar round, which is one of those fifteen minute delivery services. But all of that is based on, like, I guess you would call it the invisibilification of labor, right? Cloud kitchens, fifteen minute delivery, convenience services. It does seem to be an interesting tension there between, like, on the one hand, everything is becoming more visible. But on the other hand, you have people raising at multi-billion dollar valuations on the basis that everyone wants it to go back to being invisible again. I couldn't agree with this more. And I think generally speaking, I think Emily's uh, point is spot on, which is that what we've done is this has shown a light on a lot of things that I think people find very, like, troublesome and problematic and i think the lifestyle or the the expectations that we have like that we that were embedded into modern life about like who would do what at what pay and i you know these expectations like we don't think about them or it's like you know from a consumer standpoint you realize like you know i like to eat meat but i'm like deeply troubled by the uh, reading about the condition at the meatpacking plants. And you have these meatpacking plants and you read about the labor struggles and you're like, of course they're having labor struggles. My God, like who would want to subject themselves except the most desperate people in the world who are like, they go from freezing conditions, extremely hot conditions, high levels of disease, high levels of injury in the best of times, pretty mediocre pay. And so you're like, okay, this is 
of course there had, you know, you, these things weren't surfaced before because by and large, the meat companies, they weren't talking about the difficulty they were having hiring. But we discover that was sort of like normal, modern life that we just sort of expect in a certain way. You know, and certainly people have been doing reporting on this, but it really, long, since long before uh, the pandemic, but it really has brought it to the fore. The number of industries that run at their current price point, because obviously a lot of people are desperate for work. Well, I mean, one of the charts that goes down into the right is the degree to which the United States has been able to import unskilled labor from Mexico and Central America, right? If you went into those meatpacking plants, it was a lot of low-wage, unskilled immigrant labor. And, and refugees, I believe. Yes. And and refugees, yes. And, um, and that is... Something that has definitely played into the labor, all, all parts of the labor market, from the skilled to unskilled, ev everywhere. You know, immigration is down. The percentage of Americans who are born abroad has been going down for the past couple of years, you know, since, since the sort of mid-Trump years. It does seem to be very important for the future health of the economy that that number turns around and we get back to a slightly healthier um, immigration situation. But, to, but like, on the other hand, maybe... That decline in immigration and spe specifically unskilled immigration is is good for working conditions at places like meatpacking plants. I would just say that the current conditions have clearly forced a lot of owners of various uh, businesses, including some of the worst, uh, the ones with the most difficult conditions, to take them more seriously and to take what it takes to make the job itself more appealing. And I suspect that there is an element of the decline in uh, uh, immigration and the decline in acceptance of refugees. We are, of course, seeing it across a range of industries, some of which do not have not had that pool of labor. But I mean, it's clearly uh, it's clearly part of it. And then also to the extent that like we have all these industries, I mean, regardless of who it is, it's clear that we see in these like expectations of what normal was. And that's part of like what I guess is what I think people are rethinking. It's that why did we consider February 2020 conditions or December 2019 conditions? Like that's what we called normal, but it doesn't mean like we're going to like go back to that was just a set of conditions that existed at that time. And when the pandemic is completely over, we might have a different uh, set of conditions, but it may turn out that certain things at certain price points, certain business models just don't work in this different set of conditions. Well, I want to say one and a half things. One is that if you've ever looked at a video of a person in what we called unskilled labor doing their job, you will like never use the word unskilled ever again. But that's a good the, point. The other thing is you just published, um, you know, a newsletter and you have a podcast about our anti-work, right? Which yeah. is this absolutely thriving subreddit of folks who are like, what if not capitalism? <laughs> And, you know, some I feel like so much of 2021 hasn't only been observers of labor saying we're not going to this is no longer acceptable to us. It's also just been labor saying this is not acceptable to us. Can you talk a, just a little bit more about what anti-work is all about and how it plays into this conversation? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, so before I get, you know, we have this sort of like bright line between what we call labor and capital. But I think probably like anyone, any one of us on this uh, call right now probably knows people who are like pretty like 
well-to-do or pretty comfortable or something who are also having this thought like, I don't really like want to continue with my, um, you know, how I was working or the same pace or the same thing as I was uh, pre-pandemic. So I think that there is this sort of like very widespread, and I don't know how long it'll last, so maybe it'll like go back to normal, but up and down income scales, this sort of like, do I want to uh, go back to pre-crisis modes of working and making money? And you know, maybe it's just a temporary like, okay, maybe things will normalize next year and everyone will. So I think like what's interesting though is, uh, you know, you, there's the site anti-work and I think what it is is some people are very like, there is this obvious like sort of anarchist, anti-capitalist element to it where people talk about like, this is not right. That so many people is essential like livelihoods, their ability to provide themselves, their ability to have something resembling like a good sustainable life is sort of like completely at the whim of their boss and the boss can fire them. The boss can have them work 14 hour shifts, etc. And there's like something like deeply uh, inequitable that people feel intuitively about this in many cases. But I also think it's like, even at a more simple level, I think it's just a site and a sort of mode of coordination where people realize like maybe something a little less ambitious, not necessarily the overthrow of capitalism or the overthrow of like wage labor, but it's like, is this working? Is this thing that we just accepted as right? Correct. Whether it's something like the hour of uh, how many hours shifts we have, or like people realizing, wait, I could get a raise just by quitting my job at Wendy's and going across the street to McDonald's. And the person at McDonald's thinking I can get a uh, raise by quitting my job at McDonald's and going across the street to fill the open position at Wendy's. People waking up to stuff like this and sort of sharing that information, even people who are working or maybe who don't have a strong ideological shift, just a lot of like awareness. And I think, you know, interest in the idea of I don't know if fighting back is the right word. Or, or maybe it's someone like who, who, you know, wakes up one morning and goes, I can still have a really good job and make good money and provide for my family without having to go on television every day. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, exactly right. You don't have to go on television. That was you, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you literally did. You kind of quit 50% of your job. Yeah, you know, and I do more this and writing and everything and so you know wanna, but, <laughs> but yeah people like I, I don't deny that like after yeah after you sort of have this period um where you're like i don't necessarily want to be doing the exact same thing as i you know i like my job i like working for bloomberg i love covering markets i want to do it for a very long time i want to do it for i want to do it for a very long time but i think like the idea that like okay after this period people are like what do i want to how do i want to live my life Pretty understandable. One of the things I saw was a merger announcement in in mid December, where a couple of like mildly failing fintechs merged. I think Money Lion bought Even something like that. Anyway, the the acquired company was like, we are going to continue to be laser focused on our mission of helping hardworking Americans maximize their money or something along those lines. But the words, the words hardworking Americans were in there. And the idea that like, Americans are presumptively hardworking, and that's a sign of like moral goodness, it did seem like a bit off to me. I'm like, haven't we moved on from this idea that you only deserve to have a good financial life if you're hardworking? I think the pandemic accelerated what had been kind of like a generational shift away from 
cult of overwork, cult of ambition, pay your dues kind of stuff at work. Like I have a friend who works at this kind of like fancy firm that does cool music stuff. I don't know how else to say it. And they used to be able to hire people and pay them a little bit less. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. Anyway, but the promise of like, this is a really cool job. Media is like this. This is a really cool job. You'll get to do really cool stuff. So we don't pay you quite as much, but if you work, you know, 16 hours a day for like the next 10 years, it'll pay off. And, and kids these days are like, oh, hell no. No one wants to do that. People want to have their work and their life. And this idea of like, you pay your dues, you work crazy hours and it's all going to be worth it. I I don't think I don't think anyone believes that anymore, especially not after what people have been through in the past 18 months, 2 years. I totally agree with that. It just feels like and again, maybe people will go back, but the other thing is these sort of uh like a page like anti-work and stuff like we don't know what the effect of digital is going to be on these kind of thoughts. But the point is like this is like fairly new. I mean, I guess the internet's been around for a while now, but in terms of like how sort of uh, more defa- more ad hoc organizing, I guess I would say, or sharing of information is going to change people's perspective is uh, is an interesting question. And one of the co- things that I think about, like going back to the macro for a second, and I think about like what's going to change post, what's truly going to change? Because if you think about like, you know, the Fed and inflation and wages, et cetera, there's a lot of reasons to think that when the pandemic is over, it was all transitory. It'll all be like, you know, the normalization process will begin, right? And that's sort of the bet that the Fed is making, and that's sort of the bet that markets are making, that everything we're seeing, these sort of supply chain disruptions, labor disruptions, it's all kind of transitory and will go back. And you sort of think like, okay, well, like, that's probably what's going to happen. But what could happen different? Maybe it's just a change of mindset. Maybe something changes about how people want to interact with the economy that makes the post-pandemic environment different than it was pre-pandemic. I don't think there's anything, there's no such thing as going back to normal. Like history marches on and what what is normal is just always changing. I mean, maybe I should ask Joe, you guys, what is an example of a of a transitory thing that like went away after a while? Like like the pandemic was a big disruption. Like we're not going to talk about going back to what it was like before. Like no one talks about we went back to what it was like before World War II <laughs> or before Watergate. Um, I remember like when Trump was first elected, there was a lot of like, once we get him out, we'll go back to normal. Like, no, actually, like Trump proved there was normal wasn't what you thought it was anyway. And we're not going. No, back but I, I do think that like the general functioning of the White House is more or less back to normal now that Trump isn't. In this sure, but the political culture is not. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. One of the things that I'm really fascinated by, and I can't work out whether this is a temporary change or a permanent change, is price sensitivity. There seems to be a few different data points here, but like, you know, obviously number one is that companies are being able to raise prices and people are paying the higher prices in a way that everyone kind of assumed wasn't possible pre-pandemic. Number two is all of these like DAOs and crypto people and stuff just kind of giving money away or pulling large amounts of money for the lulls or, you know, for that matter, just throwing it away, you know, trading options on Robinhood. There's like money seems to have lost a certain amount of meaning and people don't seem to feel as much pain by having less of it than they did pre-pandemic. And I don't know if I'm looking at a very narrow slice and I'm completely oblivious to the real world or am I am I like am I, is some has something changed in terms of willingness to spend slash lose money? I was reading some um, I can't. I will, I'll put this in the show notes, but I was reading some research the other day about the fact that you are much more willing to lose money that you won gambling than you are to lose money that you earned as income. And, you know, if we, and by one gambling, you can kind of extrapolate to basically money you didn't have to work for, right? So that you could think of that as stimulus checks. You could think of that as your yield farming on your crypto accounts. You could think of it as dividends on stocks that you didn't previously earn, or just even the appreciation in stocks that you had bought at a lower level. And I do think, and I'm going to be very interested in folks better positioned than me to comment on this, I do think there is an interesting amount of money sloshing around the financial system right now that is not just earned income. And that has a psychological effect on people's risk tolerance. I, I totally buy it. I think it's, it's a great point, And I hadn't really thought of it in that way. The idea of like the more people this year and last year Obviously, there were the stimulus checks, uh, the one-off payments, the expanded UI that for at least a significant chunk of the population briefly separated the idea of labor and income, which is fairly novel. And uh, then all the gains that people have made either trading is probably had a real effect. And I, you know, neither, I don't think the trading gains are going to last forever. And obviously, I don't think the uh, uh, fiscal expansion is going to last forever. But thinking about like, did this change? You know, I have my sister-in-law like, as a small e-commerce operation. And I remember like in April of 2020, when the stimulus checks, the, the, the checks that everyone got, or the checks that everyone got below a certain income, not the UI expansion. I think they had like their best day in history a couple of days after those checks hit. It didn't last forever, but after that. And I think that's totally right. Like this idea of like, here's some found money. Let's do something different. Uh, maybe I'll be price insensitive about it because whatever, uh, I think it's a pretty it's astute observation that I hadn't really uh, thought about. And and on the fiscal level, we definitely saw that, right? We saw five trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus, you know, pouring into the economy from the federal government. And this is a degree of fiscal stimulus that was unthinkable even after the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Like somehow there was something in the air, something in the water. I don't know what it was that like allowed the government to just say, fuck it, let's just spend more money. We are not price sensitive right now. And 
it hasn't entirely gone away. Like the Republicans are now in opposition and they're going to oppose everything. But there's still like a real hope that there's going to be another two trillion dollars of build back better or whatever. Like there's there's a whole new feeling that the job of the government isn't to sort of penny pinch. It's to actually spend money and make a difference. Yeah, I mean, look, we we showed that we can spend money and stop a recession in three weeks. And that's like the recession itself was about three weeks long. It was like from the beginning of March to the end of March. And then technically the economy started growing quite rapidly again. And what we did was we spent a lot of money like crazy. And that knowledge will be with us forever. Now, politicians might not might be reluctant next time, or maybe they'll say, yeah, but it caused this inflation. That, whatever. We don't know how politics are going to be. But it's always going to be a fact that you could spend a lot of money and defeat a recession. And it seems very likely to me that that will have implications the next time around, uh, these expectations like, why do we wait years for the uh, labor market to recover? Why do we accept that? Because something external happened. You know, when, when COVID hit, one of the ways, something that greased the skids for fiscal expansion was this idea that, oh, people didn't deserve it. It's not their fault. And that's, of course, true that if you were uh, and you know, the early service workers, restaurant workers, of course, it wasn't their fault. It wasn't their fault in 2008 or 2009 either. Most people were, who lost their jobs were not in some way involved in the sort of like... Asset-backed securities. Yeah, asset-backed <laughs> securities. So they didn't deserve it then either. But it, I mean, it was like a strange, like sort of like moralistic agreement that look, it's, it's no one's fault there's a pandemic so yeah we can replace their incomes it's hardly anyone ever's fault that like there's a recession but i do think like from now on we can say that again there's a downturn because x or y happened most people it's not going to be their fault that they lose a job and i think that this sort of like perhaps tolerance to like do income replacement ui for a significant period of time will be definitely on the table there's no guarantee it's going to happen it's definitely going to be up for discussion the next time we have a recession mm-hmm I hope so. It's crazy to think they ended that thing, the recession in three weeks versus what happened in 08, which is just like dragged on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> Although like part of the reason is that financial crises are particularly bad to recover from. And this is in the literature that recession, the financial crises, you get, you always get slower recoveries for reasons that, are, you know, complex, but I'm fascinated by this idea. The neoclassical literature that doesn't want us to have the neoclassical that doesn't want us to have exactly. strong we're, we're, we're moving away from our IMMT yeah. thinking but the but I am fascinated by this idea if, again if we're looking at the long year which began in April 2020 the sort of hero who injected trillions of dollars ended the recession in three weeks and showed the world what you know was possible with aggressive enough fiscal policy would be uh, Steve Mnuchin yeah, Mnuchin right is he is he is he the unsung hero of of the last eighteen months? Yes, because no one's singing his praises. <laughs> I can tell you. Why can't we say Jerome Powell? Why do we have to say Steve? Well, Mnuchin, Mnuchin put the money in people's pockets. Mnuchin was the one who like passed the law or got you know. Yeah, I'll say it. That was like he was in the right place at the right time, and and sort of combined this sort of like Trumpian. You know, it was like a that, that I would say that. Stimulus combined a few things. It's like one is this sort of like Trumpian, like GDP growth, growth at all costs, like, you know, very like spend instincts, but also with like a pragmatism. And I don't know if like Trump himself could have like gotten it with someone like if you had like a more, if you had a sort of more MAGA 
uh, Treasury Secretary, and I don't think Mnuchin really was. I think he was like kind of like a guy who's like made a bet on Trump, like uh, savvy. Like he's also had the pragmatism to like pull it off. And you know, I think the Democrats obviously were pretty inclined to go for it because it was fiscal expansion, because it mainly targeted uh, sort of lower end workers, etc. It there was a nice confluence of things because the Republicans were in power, so they you know had it been a Democrat in the White House. Probably a reasonable bet that the Republicans would not have been so inclined to vote for it in Congress. But yeah, I think Mnuchin played a pretty big role in making that happen. But even if there had been a moderate, you know, even if there had been anyone other than Trump in the White House, because I go back to Hank Paulson trying to get fiscal stimulus through under, under George Bush, and the problem was he couldn't persuade the House Republicans to do what George, what, what George Bush wanted them to do. In this case... Steve Mnuchin, all he needed to do to persuade the House Republicans to go along was say, Trump wants this. And no House Republican wanted to go against Trump. And Trump's ability to drag like all House Republicans along on any fiscal path he wanted to is really quite astonishing, given the rhetoric that you normally hear from, you know, that side of the aisle. Wait, so are we saying that the Trump administration saved the country from a really devastating recession and did it in a matter well, of Well, I believe they were the people who, who poured in the money, right? I guess that's true. Uh, you know what I will say? And obviously we've seen, even with Trump out of the office, uh, with Trump out of office, the incredible like pull that he has over the Republican Party. And I will say to some extent that one of the tragedies of uh, Trumpism is that he had some good, I think, uh, interesting economic instincts, particularly on infrastructure, like Infrastructure Week began as a joke because Trump was really interested in infrastructure. And that was like why that became a joke. But other than like that brief period in March, it never felt like that White House had any real um, motivation to do anything on their own stated ambitions. So at no, they never passed any infrastructure. You know, they had a full uh, Congress total control of D.C., it would have been very hard, I think, if, in 2017 for Democrats to oppose like a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. If Trump had said, as he did say multiple times on, you know, he said on the campaign trail, I was like, why are we spending a trillion dollars in Iraq instead of spending uh, a trillion dollars in rebuilding America's cities? That sounds pretty good to me. Like, I that could have been an interesting thing. That would have been a message that's pretty hard for Democrats in 2017 to oppose. Like, let's build a bunch of stuff. They never did it. They never, like, put forward the effort to use Trump's power of persuasion over Republicans. So other than that sort of brief period in March 2020, it was more or less like a Mitch McConnell agenda the rest of, like, the, you know, the 3.9 uh, years of the administration. But the, the, the counterexample is Europe, right? Because Europe, you know, faced basically the same COVID wave that we did. And they had a set of governments or a federation or whatever you want to call it, which is significantly to the left of Trump. And their fiscal response was very small compared to ours. And their economic response has been commensurately small compared to ours. Yeah, I thought that would change. That was one of the things that I got wrong. I thought like this would be the moment that like Germany did like this big pivot on EU wide fiscal rules. I thought it would be so necessary. I think was my that there would be no alternative for Europe but to sort of really pivot on fiscal, and it didn't. I mean, and so that that was one of the things I definitely got wrong. This was a year a lot of people got a lot of things wrong. Yeah, I don't can, feel we all, that. can we all agree on that? 
including us. I feel like we had an, I don't know. I've been, I was saying like this new COVID wave, it's fine, whatever. And now it's clear like, oh God, it's all happening. Or I mean, I don't know if the severity of cases will be as bad, but you know, there, when things are changing so fast and there's a lot of volatility, there's a lot of people getting a lot of things wrong all the time. Yeah. Do, do you remember the K-shaped re- recovery? Everyone felt so smart talking about <laughs> the K-shaped recovery. No one talks about that no. anymore. No. <laughs> there's not necessarily consequences um, for getting things wrong is the problem. Fortunately, in our line of work. Thank God. immediately cease to exist. <laughs> yeah, I'll take, I'll take it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> but it, it does speak to how hard it is I mean, everyone understands that forecasting is impossible and seeing the future is impossible, but even seeing the present is really hard. Yes, even getting such a good like point. uh even understanding what is happening right now in front of your nose is so hard. No, it's the past. It's, I've always hated that expression. It's like hindsight is 2020. 20. No, it's, it's not. Super nuts. It's no. it's not even close. <laughs> and I think you know in all seriousness, if as a journalist if we could do a pretty good job of describing the past, we've done a pretty good job. I really believe that. That, you know, it's like we joke about we have a hard time anticipating the future. Everyone does, you know. But if we, as people in the media, can do a fairly good job accurately recounting things that have happened prior to us writing them, I say that's a – we should we should aim for that because it's not as, like, obvious that people are – you know, that's not as easy as a thing as people imagine. Hindsight is not twenty twenty, so let's just go right, for exactly. that. Exactly. This is, this is why, you know, it, it's silly to try and draw this thing. When you talk to someone like Adam Tooze, you know, is he an economist? Is he a historian? Is he a journalist? It's all basically the same thing. It's all, like, looking at the past and trying to work out what just happened is very hard. And he – right. Like, that's what makes Adam good at it is – Yes, he described, you know, and obviously he has a new book about COVID, but he also wrote that book, um, Crashed, uh, that I think came out in 2018 about the financial crisis. And it took a while for that book to come out, basically a decade. But why it's good? Because it just does a good job of describing the past. And he identifies, he sort of like focuses on things that people may have not thought about or appreciated the degree to which they mattered at that time. That book is basically like, a thousand words about central bank swap lines. But he recognized like that was like a very important aspect in uh, sort of like healing the system from this big shortage of dollars. And those had a pretty big role. Uh, he is very good at describing the past and it's an underrated skill. Joe, is there is there something like central bank swap lines, which like we suddenly realized in 2021 is much more important than we thought it was. What was the 21? What was the 2021 equivalent of central bank swap lines that we were like, oh yeah, of course, central bank swap lines. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, the port of LA, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a, it's a good question. You know, the the interesting. So one of the things that's sort of forgotten, and there's going to be like you know, books probably written about this for like decades after this. But obviously, if one thing that happened in the beginning was, uh, you know, I think it was March 2020 was the crisis in the treasury market, which which really lasted about a week. But here you have the most safe haven asset, uh, the biggest market in the world, and liquidity dried up, and the Fed had to uh, set up a facility to sort of turn them into liquid assets, and now it's going to make them important. 
that was a meaningful advance in infrastructure. Now that was a sort of or a sort of financial market infrastructure that was sort of built on the fly in 2020. That's a little bit too on the nose, maybe for the parallel you're looking for, because that's something is very similar to the swap lines of like setting up this solution to uh, a liquidity crisis. But just as the swap lines were important then, that was like a step forward in stabilizing the infrastructure. The financial infrastructure that'll probably be with us for a while this time around. Plumbing matters, guys. That's what we can look forward to in 2022 is a brave new world of no more libel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. This has been amazing. Joe Weisenthal, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Thanks to Shana Roth for producing and... We will be back next week with another Sleep Money. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.